Voices. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their political conversations in colors other than red and blue. We are at the last of our four-part series on who bears responsibility when protests and rallies turn violent. And we are ending this series, as we always do, with Arjun Murthy, my good friend from thefactual.com. If you haven't checked out The Factual yet, it is a news site that ranks sources based on partisan bias and credibility to deliver the best spin-free news stories and every day they poll their readership on a pressing issue. Now, right after the verdict against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally, The Factual asked their readership if organizers of rallies should be held responsible when events turn violent. Now, I love these polls because The Factual's readership tends to span across the political spectrum, and I was very interested in hearing what folks were thinking. The results were not surprising, but did confirm a lot of what I've come to believe from my conversations in the past few episodes, which you should check out if you have not. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. The topic we've been covering for the month of January is based on a poll origin that you ran on the factual. What we were looking at is what's the culpability of rally organizers for violence that takes place at their events or damages that takes place at their events. And I, I want to dig into the specifics of the poll. Can you just restate what that question was for the for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So the question was, should organizers of rallies be responsible for violent action? of attendees. And we did this poll back on November 26th. We had 432 votes, so a pretty decent sample size. And again, for people who aren't aware, the Factuals readership, the the people that we poll, are all across all 50 United States, across about 3,000 different zip codes, and really appear to span all socioeconomic classes. So a pretty good cross-section of the U.S. It should probably be noted, too, it was released right after the verdict against the Unite the Right rally organizers was laid down, right? That's right. Yeah, that was the impetus yeah. for for the poll. Yeah, yeah. And that it, I, I think that probably factors into the breakdown because it seemed, and again, for those of you who haven't or who, who are just listening to You Don't Have to Yell, haven't listened to earlier episodes, you're generally the polls and the factual tend to break down pretty evenly. And in this specific case, there was the the decisive major, plurality, not majority, but the there was a the, the the yeses were a decisively larger group, right? Yeah. So the poll options are yes, no, and unsure. So again, should organizers of rallies be responsible for violent actions of attendees? Uh, yes, took forty six percent. No was 32% and unsure was 22%. And perhaps what's most notable is normally the unsures are less than 10% on most polls that we do. This probably had the highest fraction of unsure and goes to really the nuance that's required to 
respond to this question. So we'll get into that. But I think the big highlight is it's almost too simplistic a question. And a lot of people caught on to that. In, in the three episodes I've recorded prior to this, I am far more uncertain than I was when I entered into it. And and I can give my reasons as, as we go, go into it a little bit further. Um, did you feel too, because one of the things I picked up in the comments is that folks were definitely coming to it with some sort of rally in mind, not necessarily unite the right. Yeah. Did you get that feeling as well? There were definitely people that uh, seemed to respond with either the Unite the Right rally or the BLM rallies over the summer. And so they were interpreting that question along those lines. And actually, a lot of them also said, are thinking of this question in only this dimension, but we should really think about it across both because they're both rallies of people getting together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a fair question to ask. One reason, obviously, is you, you want to make sure the the laws applied equally. But I think also you do want to make sure that we're not giving the government too much or too little power. But I'd love to know, in, in terms of the yes votes, what were some of the overall themes and maybe what were some of the comments that really stood out to you? I thought what was really interesting about the yes votes were people basically saying, look, what did the organizers of the rally, what was the tone that they set? And were they looking to foment violence or were they just looking to gather people to protest something? Mm -hmm. And if it's more the fomenting of violence, then yeah, they're absolutely responsible. They set the ground rules for this gathering. So a lot of the yes folks said, you as the organizer set the tone, you set the rules, you set the environment. And if you set it up in such a way that it is encouraging violence, then absolutely you should be held responsible. And I saw a lot more folks saying, make sure that this applies both to BLM gatherings slash riots, as well as Unite the Right and all those kinds. They're all rallies of people and it should apply equally. There were a couple things that I picked up in my conversations that that speak to that. And one thing I discovered is that the criminal law when it comes to when it comes to prosecuting people to or when it comes to prosecuting organizers in rallies that turn violent is a it the system actually works pretty well and b and and part of that is because what you have to say in order to get charged for inciting violence is so blatant and apparent. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. The the there was there's one Supreme Court case that really guides all of it versus Claiborne Hardware, and this was an instance where shop owners who in this town in Mississippi were boycotted due to a police shooting of an of an African American, and the the stores, the shopkeepers were suing the NAACP for economic damages. Now in the suit came a statement by this guy named Charlie Evers, who was associated with the NAACP, who said something to the effect of, if we catch any of you going into those racist stores, we're going to break your damn neck. That was verbatim. Wow. That did not qualify. Really? That did not, yeah, it did not qualify as incitement of violence. So 
there are all these standards. And if you want to hear about them, the episode I did two episodes back with John Vile documents them for, for mm. you listening. But it, the standard's extremely high. So, for example, if you look at, if we take Donald Trump's rally, for example, January 6th, saying we're going to fight like hell, Rudy Giuliani saying trial by combat, Mo Brooks saying we're going to kick some ass. Those are all not, those don't qualify. Those are all yeah. highly protected. So it is very, very difficult to actually fall, run afoul of you know, the criminal side of things. Now, the second part of that, though, and where I would say you can you really have to give special consideration to BLM is the issue of what does police presence do or police behavior do to the likelihood of you getting arrested or the likelihood of violence occurring? Because again, we'll, we'll compare the attack on the Capitol versus your typical BLM rally, or for that matter, the BLM rally that took place outside the White House. You have an instance where the capital at or the the you, you have a, you have a, you have an instance where the police presence in Washington on January 6th was significantly less than it was during the BLM protests mm-hmm. and and there is an argument to be made that if the police presence is ramped up if there is more confrontation there's going to be more arrestable offenses you know there because there's going to be provocation there's there, there are just a lot of things that that kind of raise the temperature on that. And so, you know, I, I, I think that's that's where the law gets that's where the law gets tricky. And I, I want to get into the no votes in a second, because the law can say when you are guilty of committing a crime. And generally, if you commit an act of violence at a protest, you and you get caught, you're going to be prosecuted, just like the. Mm-hmm. Uh, person who drove into that crowd of protest or the the crowd of demonstrators at Unite the Right, you're going to get caught, you're going to get prosecuted. The que- I think when you start to ask what it is that makes a rally turn violent, I think it's legitimate to explore, is there some aspect of police presence that can either increase or decrease the likelihood that uh, things are going to turn violent? And, and, I don't, and, I, and I also, I'll, I'll say this to the audience, I don't know the answer to that. I really yeah. don't. I'm just I'm I, I, I I'm putting it out there because I think it's it's worth noting. Yeah, that's now, I, I don't know either, actually. You know, it came up in the last episode. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. But I do want to I do want to get to the no votes, too. So so tell me about the no votes. What were the themes and what were what were some notable comments? So I thought what was most prevalent in the no votes was first and foremost, that people wanted to protect the right to protest and to rally. A lot of people see the the right to free speech is so very important, so very core to being American. We have always protested things that we have been unhappy about, and that's driven a lot of change. And it seemed like nearly everyone was on the same page as saying, we need to preserve that and not cede too much power to the government that removes that right from us. Uh, There was also a very interesting theme that came up a bunch of times where people said, if we go so draconian and say that the organizers are going to be held responsible, just watch for how many times there will be people planted in the rally, counter-protesters, to cause problems and to basically derail the rally and have it be associated with violence when the organizers didn't intend it to be. And lo and behold, 
now we're out of our ability to protest. So I thought that was a really good point that if you start to hold the, the organizers responsible, but they're bad actors in the crowd, where does personal responsibility, where do you draw that line? And that seemed yeah. to come up a lot in the no votes. That is 100% where I stand as well in terms of the criminal aspect of things where I, 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 I do think that it would have a chilling effect on free speech if we were to again crim- hold, pe- if if the standard for criminal liability were too high, were too low, and one of the most interesting comments I found, and I'll I'll read this aloud because I I saved it, was unless a rally is organized specifically to commit violent actions, it's impossible to foresee what attendees might or will do. Example: I participated in a demonstration march expressing sympathy for workers striking in Poland. In a few hours, the demonstration developed into a local, later national revolution against political order. Date, October 23rd, 1956, Budapest, Hungary. And that was one of the biggest uprisings against communist rule back in, in during the Cold War, which I thought was just super interesting. And, and also, I, I do think that in general, it, it is very difficult to contain a large group of people. You know, one of the yeah. things I've heard time and again, as I've interviewed people who participated in protests, is they say, you get a whole group of people with varying agendas. They're all there for one thing, but you've got some who are more radical, some who are more extreme, and it's very difficult to contain it. And this is where the Unite the Right case actually gets really very, very interesting. Because those organizers had a $25 million award levied against them. Hmm. Now, yeah, now in order to do that, right, the paper trail could not have been longer. I mean, mm-hmm. they could not have been any dumber in how they went <laughs> about this. There, there were text messages, there were Discord servers, there were, I mean, <laughs> anywhere where you could post a message saying, we're going down there with the intention of provoking fights with counter-protesters, anywhere you could put it, they put it. Yeah. Anywhere. It was insane. And I would, I would encourage anybody listening to this too, dig into it, like dig into what was actually said. And I think because it highlights the standard that the that the government has to present or that attorneys have to present in order to really find somebody liable of violence, like you quite literally have to be planning for fights to occur. That gets cloudy. And, and I would probably venture to say there's like a 90% chance no repercussions are felt by any of the organizers because they there would have to be some overt mention, you know, planting people in the crowd or or something like that. It would have to be so blatant that their plan was to go to the Capitol and 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 stir up trouble that I just find it unlikely that he'd suffer any consequences for what happened. Nor I liked a lot of the responses in the unsure column. As I've said before, so many of our polls, the quote right answer often is unsure because these things depend on nuances and situations and stuff. And so a lot of the folks in the unsure column, uh, which is, again, what, oh, 22% of the of the responses said, you know, let's be reasonable. And it was sort of a meld of the yeses and nos saying, were the organizers trying to incite violence? Were they really pushing for it? Was it sort of aggressive in the tone to speech? Or did they not know they were, you know, bad actors in the scene? Extend this situation to other settings. I mean, one guy said, go to a stadium for a sports game and then a big fight breaks out and, and there's violence. 
what if that happened? Who is actually responsible? And I think nearly everyone came down on, well, that's on the individuals. There was no reason to think this was going to turn into violence. There was no desire, no sort of pushing people to get all riled up. And so this happened, and that's personal responsibility. And those people should be held accountable, not the the setting. So I thought it was a very good answer on the unsure sort of balancing free speech, personal responsibility, uh, all those kinds of things. Yeah, and I, I think you're right, too. Like I said, I was unsure. And the thing that really kind of, I guess, increased my uncertainty was the last episode I did covered this case Doe versus McKesson that a lot of people don't know about. Let me let me take a step back here. There was a police officer who sustained pretty significant injuries while he was on duty at the event. And so he lawyered up and his lawyer sued a whole host of litigants, which included DeRay McKesson, but also the Black Lives Matter hashtag. So this guy sued a hashtag, first and foremost. <laughs> so froze that hashtag's assets, you know? Um, but so McKesson now has been locked in a civil suit for the last five years since that happened. And this is where my, un- this is where my uncertainty lies and this is where my problem lies. Is It's really difficult for me to say, you know what? the organizers of the Unite the Right rally should not have been held responsible for what happened. Because if you read their communications, it is very clear they went in there structuring that rally in a way where it would increase the odds that they were going to come, where they were going to clash with counter protesters, right? On the same token, McKesson spoke at a rally, did not incite violence. The protest was not structured to be violent. And he has dealt with having this case pending in court, going back and forth between upper courts and lower courts for for a time, bore some of the legal costs. The ACLU, I think, has picked this up now. And that concerns me because if you're able to lock somebody up in civil litigation due to their participation in a particular protest, then I don't see a big difference between that and just banning the, the speech outright. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, sort you know? of legal red tape will just tie you up forever. Well, that's it. Because if I have to, if I have the threat of financial ruin, or if, if I'm facing the threat of financial ruin for speaking out, that that in and of itself is chilling. And I think what we've seen is that state laws are actually the thing to worry about. Huh. You know, so yeah. So like Louisiana tort law is written in such a way that this can happen. And even I don't know if you remember, Florida was trying to pass a law that was really targeting BLM. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that that's what like I think a lot of folks miss in the national conversation is that it is the states a lot of times that influence these cases. And the the other question is like what does the how does a lot of it depends on the supreme court too and kind of how they react so with mckesson they kicked it back down to the lower court so it's still going on right i wonder you know thinking back to protests uh, and civil rights efforts for the last hundred years Mm -hmm. you think about people like uh, martin luther king or gandhi and i wonder how much we can learn from them and i'm certainly not 
an organizer of protests. So what I'm about to say is probably very basic. And to yeah. people who are actually organizers, they might think, dude, you're way out of your lane. Yeah. But I wonder if two things are a good idea. The first is to be explicitly nonviolent, to make it be a, a tenant of your movement, as Gandhi did. And then second is to prepare to get arrested anyways. Mm -hmm. I think that if you're going to protest some civil rights issue in any country, it's likely that the state will try to come down on you regardless of where you stand. Like Gandhi was still arrested a bunch of times. Yep. And so was MLK. I don't think you're getting out of that. And I think the state is going to find ways to quiet you. But if you at least are explicitly nonviolent, first of all, there's probably less likely to be injuries and deaths to both protesters, but other innocent bystanders and things like that, which I think no protest movement really wants to have blood on their hands. It's just, I, I think it probably doesn't serve your purpose well. So it seems like that's a good thing to do. But I think even if you do that, you're still going to face the courts and the police and the government. Yeah, no, I, you know, I would, I would agree with that. And, and I would also say like thinking about MLK and thinking about Gandhi, they both were branding or were branded nonviolent. Like they made sure to, yeah. they, they made sure to make that a, a founding pillar of their movement. And even Gandhi, and I can't remember the term, but he had this term for this discipline that the movement had to, that that effectively this discipline this discipline that was put on the movement to ensure that things didn't get out of hand and and i do think that you know again like we'll we'll take i'll take january the the rally on january 6th and blm as an example um i i i i i don't believe the majority of either group went out with the intent of causing trouble i really don't I really don't. And on the same token, I, I do think that there's not that same overt repetition of this is nonviolent. This is nonviolent. Like, I do think that I, I think, yeah, I think if you're going to and again, like I'm equally unqualified as you, Arjun. So, you know, organizers, feel free to lob stones at us. But but yeah, I I, I feel like, you know, if you look at what's missing there, there wasn't that kind of repetition of, you know, or there wasn't that, how do I put it? There, there's, there's, there's not the word nonviolence just explicitly written over everything they're saying and doing. Yeah. I, I think there's, if, if we go into history, it seems like there are lots of examples to draw from successful rallies and civil rights movements. I'm sure the folks who go to all these rallies and, and organize have probably studied those, but it seems like any time that violence was critical, like you even think about the, the fall of, communism and and Berlin the Berlin Wall coming down and yeah. famously was actually nonviolent. Mm -hmm. It actually yeah. came down in a pretty surprisingly peaceful way, even though of course for years and years up until that point, any sort of protest efforts had been violently quelled. So it seems like there's a tipping point when change happens. And yeah. the tipping point isn't usually associated with violence. Like I know in, in Indian history, which I had to study for school, there were horrible things that happened during the British rule and a lot of Indians being massacred at, at uh, a couple of very famous sort of gatherings. 
And it's not clear to me that that was what pushed the movement through so much as just the continuous and steady drumbeat of Gandhi's efforts of like, yeah, we're just not going to comply. We're going to be civil disobedience, but nonviolent. We're just not going to comply. What are you going to do? Yeah, I think it was MLK is credited with this, and I'm not sure if he's the one who originated it or who who created it. But it's the the arc of or the arc of history is long and bends towards justice. Oh, so, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, it is because it because it just it does take a long time, and I and I do think too. I think about this a lot, where you know, in any system, even ours, there's always going to be a certain amount of injustice baked into it because laws aren't perfect, people aren't perfect, government isn't perfect. And part of the reason I'm a big fan of the American system of democracy is it is so explicitly centered around the individual in the sense that the the, the government, we have probably the most restrained government out of any government that exists, the least powerful government yeah. out of any that exists. Certainly federal but government. On, the federal government, true, true, yeah. and that, and 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 so I do think you. Know, but all that, all that being said, it's obvious that injustice still has been allowed to exist in a legal sense, and I, I do think that there are these two opposing forces, which is you need people to enforce the law, right? You need people who are there and who are going to make sure that if you are not obeying the law, that you are somehow stopped, right? And then there's also a necessity at times to break the law to serve the cause of justice. And so in a lot of ways, I think there's a very long-winded way of, of agreeing with your point that, yeah, if you were going to change an injustice, that may involve getting arrested. That may involve running afoul of the law. And you just have to be ready for that. Yeah, um, exactly. You know? I think the point about the U.S. government being so centered around the individual is maybe common knowledge to people, but I think it's worth reiterating that in many countries, there's rubbish, like you have to apply for a permit to rally. Yeah. And not I'm not talking like a big rally that closes off streets, which I can understand maybe you need a permit for. I mean, just like getting together in the town square, you would need a permit. Yeah. And of course, those can be denied willy-nilly by the government. So the US really works hard to protect an individual's right to free speech, to gather, again, peacefully, to protest, and to not, and maybe it's because of how the country was founded, that we don't want to have the government have too much power. So I thought that was really nicely reflected in a lot of the comments on this poll. Wherever people came down on it, they said, I don't want anything like this to quell our ability to protest and rally, but do it in a way that isn't centered around violence or isn't likely to lead to violence, because it, there are a lot of innocent people that end up getting crushed by this. And that's not really the America we want to build. Arjun, I could explore this topic further, <laughs> but I think we, that was the most positive thing that I think we've, we've, we've probably expressed about the American political system. And the, and the thing I'd like to highlight too is that the thing that I think is really cool about that is that you've got a mix of people of all partisan stripes from all over the country, right? Right. And there has been this cloud hanging over us all that the U.S. is marching towards autocracy, whether it be this 
whatever, AOC, socialist state, or Donald Trump authoritarian state, depending on which side of the aisle you fall on. I think the thing that's cool is you've got a lot of folks saying, hey, let's not, a lot of people who buy into the concept of America and a lot of people are saying, hey, let's not give the government too much power over this. Yeah, I think what what maybe is uh, even more, uh, perhaps more surprising is when we run polls around BLM itself and the and the rally slash riots over the summer, there was probably widespread, not probably, there is widespread support for the ideas around justice and making sure that everyone is treated fair, especially by the police, and a recognition that Black people haven't always been treated fairly by the police. I think yeah. most people actually are in agreement with that. So it was good to see that on the core issue there's actually widespread agreement. In terms of how we protested and whether or not the rally slash riots was the best way to do it, um, that there was plenty of disagreement on, understandably so. And for people like you and me who are not in the rallies or are not directly affected by the issues that BLM people are protesting, it's hard for us sometimes to appreciate the gravity of the situation. So I don't sit here and say that, oh, you guys are right and wrong. But I was hard... Pleasantly, uh, as positive, I felt positive of seeing that so many people understood the gripes of people in that movement and said, yeah, you guys have some legitimate gripes. I may not agree yeah. with your methods, but I agree with your gripes. And that was, that's a start. That, see, that type of thing really kind of warms my heart um, because that's such a counter to the all or nothing presentation I think we see so often. And from my understanding, we can still all hate the Proud Boys and Antifa, right? That's still, they're, they're still fair game, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think in general, no matter which side of the aisle you stand on, the yeah. vast majority of people don't like violent protests, don't yeah. like vandalism and destruction of public property. They don't think it furthers the cause It distracts from the cause. And it frankly just really negatively impacts people who are not even in this, who like have to go to work or have to clean up the mess left behind or have to fix their store up because it was smashed to bits. Like nobody wants that. So I think, yeah, whether you're Antifa or Proud Boys or whatever movement you are, if you're using violence and vandalism to push your cause, you're going to lose the majority of the country. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving a kind review. And of course, if you did not and can keep this between us, I would greatly appreciate it. You can find the poll referenced in this conversation on YDHTY.com in the show notes and more polls like the one we discussed on thefactual.com. That is T-H-E-F-A-C-T-U-A-L.com. Now, getting back to what I said in the introduction, this poll was released days after the verdict against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally, so it's not surprising almost half of the people who responded voted yes. And while I have had to say that I don't like Nazis way more times than I care to during this series, I also think this highlights the peril of criminal law making it easier to prosecute organizers and rallies turn violent. Because as we learned in the January 13th episode with John Vile, 
sways in public opinion can lead to serious infringement on our civil liberties. And we saw this in the early 1900s with laws targeting communists during the Red Scare. And on the same token, from this series, I've come to believe civil suits pose an equal threat, as we learned in last week's episode with Garrett Epps. While prosecutors against the Unite the Right rally uh, had more than enough evidence to find the organizers civilly liable, we also see instances where less credible, frivolous lawsuits can lock organizers in very expensive court proceedings and drag on for years. And we see states beginning to push laws to make these suits easier to file, which is more like fining people for exercising their right to assembly and free speech instead of jailing them. Uh, and this in and of itself, I think is problematic. I would be interested in your thoughts. This is a really complex subject. So feel free to email me any comments at heydan, that is H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. I would love to hear from you. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, Y-D-H-T-Y's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. Y-D-H-T-Y is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney, until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ladios.